Hello, Nathan Brush here. Welcome back to the Journey Further podcast. For this special one-off episode, I'm delighted to be handing over the mic to my colleague Isabel from the Journey Further book club, who has an incredible author interview to share with you. Isabel, it's all yours. Thanks, Nathan. So I had the absolute joy and privilege of speaking with Bernadine Evaristo. Bernadine is an award-winning author and poet who has been writing stories about the African diaspora for over four decades. In 2019, she won the Booker Prize alongside Margaret Atwood in a historic moment as the first black woman and first black British writer to win since the prize's inception 50 years earlier. I spoke to her about her brand new book, Manifesto, which is a memoir about her life experiences to reach that point. We talk about Booker Prize wins, what makes up her creative life, how to build resilience, personal development, visualisation and affirmations, social media and much more. It's jam-packed and you've got to listen right to the end for Bernadine's top book recommendation for book club members. Trust me, it's worth the listen. Bernadine's joy, determination, ambition and incredible skills are so clear and abundant in the way she talks about her experiences and brand new memoir manifesto. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed recording with her. I've got a million questions that I'd love to ask you, but I have to kick off by asking you, what is the wrong that you set out to write with your work? Um, Yeah, the wrong is, I guess, inequality, discrimination, um, prejudice. Uh, I guess, essentially, that is one of the things that I'm interested in exploring through my work. Or perhaps that's what I... Um, that's what underpins my work, even though I am a storyteller. So with my novels, for example, I tell stories. So those stories may not be directly tackling those things. But the reason I write those stories is because I want to broaden the range of literature out there to become more inclusive of people from the communities that I am most invested in. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, you've written such an abundance of fiction and of course you had your amazing win of the Booker Prize in 2019 which we'll we'll get on to. How does it feel different to have put Manifesto out there and to have that published compared to your fiction releases? Yeah it's very different, very interesting um, because it is my life but I made a decision to explore areas of my life um, that some of which are sort of out there in public domain but a lot of the things aren't in the public domain. So I have become a less private person through writing this book because I've talked about my relationships, I've talked about my living situations, I've talked about my writing process, um, and, and also certain things about my family background. And so I can't be precious about that because usually when I'm talking about my fiction, I am talking about the story I've told, how I've told it, why I've told it, um, you know, the structure, the sort of creative decisions that I've made, whereas this book is about my life. So when I'm talking about the book, I'm talking about my life and talking about some of the things that are in the book, but also talking about some of the wider issues and also things that aren't in the book. So it's a completely different process. And actually, it's kind of less stressful than a novel, believe it or not, because I think when you make the decision to cross the line and to sort of open up your life to readers, then you just have to accept that and go with that and enjoy that. But when you write a creative work, you know that people are going to be judging your creativity and your artistry and your the skill and the sophistication of how you're telling your story. And that is a lot more stressful than just saying, well, this is my life. This is how I've chosen to tell it. And yeah, 
you think whatever you think about that. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I, I'd love to know then, why did you choose to to open up your life at this time? Why did you feel it was important to share Manifesto now? The origins of men of, of Manifesto, um, the memoir idea, came about through talking about myself a lot when um, I won the Booker Prize, which hasn't really stopped, to be honest. Um, and now it's started up again with Manifesto. Uh, but it hasn't, you know, I was just talking about myself so much. And there was a great deal of interest in me and my journey, as we say, to, to reaching this point. And when it came to talking to my publisher about my next book, I just thought, you know, I'd like to put this down on paper. I would like to um, find a way to explore it in a book form so that, that it, I'm kind of leaving a permanent record of it, of myself at this stage in my life, looking back on my life, mainly through the prism of my creativity. I mean, the whole point of it really is about having a creative life and how I've had a creative life. And so it, and also it meant that I avoided the um, the challenge of writing a book to follow girl, woman, other in a couple of years. Uh, so there would be obvious comparisons because I know that there's a lot of love for girl, woman, other. And that would have been a pressure, even though I deny it because I, I kind of like to see everything in a very positive light. I would have felt this pressure to follow up a book that would have had the same impact as girl, woman, other. Now I've given myself breathing space. And also, actually, when I finished Girl, Woman, Other, 12 co-protagonists. So, you know, that was a big job and it took many years to write the book. I, I really didn't really want to write another character for a long time um, because it was just like I've spent so much energy on that book. I just thought, no, I, I don't want to get into another character. I need to stay away from that for a while. So so these are some of the reasons why I, I wrote Manifesto. And do you feel like you've got a bit more headspace now to maybe, maybe you've aired out your cobwebs and you've got a bit of headspace to get into the head of another character? I will have, I will have next year um, because now I'm talking about Manifesto a lot. So, uh, and I'm really, I'm on tour and doing loads of media and so on. And I just do not have the headspace to get creative. And I need, I need a few months of quiet time to get back into my creative zone. I can imagine. Um, so yeah, you, you've you've mentioned and you share in the book how when you won the Booker Prize, you took a little moment to reflect on your creativity and I guess your journey to get to to this huge accolade um, and how everyone was calling you an overnight success and and how that was far far from the truth, but there was some truth in it. But um, I wonder if you could describe for me how you view the elements of creativity um what what composes a creative life well yeah i have led a creative life um really ever since i was 12 and went to the youth theater that was the beginning of me entering the arts and also a couple of years after i joined the youth theater i then decided i wanted to be an actor which i was initially and then became a writer so it goes back, actually, when you think about it, half a century, <laughs> slightly shocking, half a century of living a creative life. And I wouldn't have had it any other way, to be honest, because creative, what creativity meant for me as a child was um, self-expression. Um, even though I didn't, I wasn't aware of it at the time, you know, you kind of interpret your life through with hindsight. 
but I learned to be self-expressed. I learned individuality, although that was also my family background. But, you know, the creative spaces where a space where individuality is prized and treasured. I learned the value of community because the youth theatre was a community for me that nurtured me throughout my childhood from the age of 12. And then I also, um, what was the other thing? There was something else, creativity. Uh, oh, it's gone out of my head. There was one other thing that I, I learned. And so, oh yes, acceptance. Not only self-acceptance, but community acceptance. Because the youth theatre was a space I now realise where if a child felt that they didn't quite fit into the society that they were in, they, grow, they were growing up in, and I didn't fit because I was brown-skinned um, with a Nigerian father, the youth theatre was a place where you were welcome. And, and so there were oddballs there, and that was great. Um, and I, I would say that's also sometimes the case with the arts anyway, that the people who feel that they don't have a home in the more sort of traditional avenues of our society do find a home in the arts where actually their difference can be a virtue. And so that was the seeding of a life where that was, I've explored that um, up until today. And it has been incredibly enriching and rewarding, not financially, but in every other way imaginable. Hi there, just a quick interruption to invite you to join the Journey Further book club. This is the community which Isabel runs, which gives you access to the best non-fiction reads, which you can use to make change in your personal and professional life. It's completely free to join. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the link. Now back to the conversation. You write specifically about how we always focus on people's creative inspiration and creative idols, but there's so much more to it than that. The whole life goes into finding this creativity and the experiences we have along the way, of course, compose that. So, you know, you write about, and you've just mentioned it now, growing up as a mixed race family in very white Woolwich, kind of your housing problems throughout your kind of early 20s, late 20s, and going on to form theatre groups and the, the struggles of that financially and kind of getting the right backing. Um, to talk about resilience then, this is the theme of the Journey Further Book Club this month and of course Manifesto is, is so true to that. We've just lived through and we continue to live through 18 months of incredible hardship and inequities. What would you say to anyone who's kind of struggling with hardship right now? Because I think hindsight is a real blessing and in hindsight, we can see what we learn from hardship in life. But what would you say to anyone going through it right now who is really struggling to see how they might reach their ambitions and goals? I think resilience is something, and I've been talking about this quite a lot. And, you know, sometimes my thoughts and ideas change as I, you know, as I go through life. Um, but I think for me, resilience is something that you only develop through obstacles and hardship. So, so when you are faced with obstacles and, and challenges, you have a choice about whether you work through that and persist with, with whatever your, um, you know, your endeavor is, whatever the thing is that you're doing that you really want to do is, or you might be crushed by it, right? And we know people are crushed by it or just so disappointed that you give up. And I never gave up. So I, I was never crushed by um, you know the, the challenges I faced in my life and my career, but I only realized that 
all these years later, that whatever the hardships were, and there were some, I overcame them by never giving up. And so resilience, I think, is something that you need in life anyway. You know, it's very hard to go through life without resilience, but there are t- there'll probably be times in your life where you need to be more resilient than in other times. So you need to build that skill. So what, I feel like, I feel like I'm a motivational speaker right now. <laughs> I love it. I yeah, absolutely love it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I should put an American <laughs> accent. Um, so, so what if you were to see the hardship that you're going through at the moment as part of your resilience building um, foundation, right? And it's it's very easy for me to say that. And it's, I know some people will be appalled at me saying that. How dare you? How dare you, you know, talk about this as something in a positive light, But what if you were to see it as something that you have to get through, that you will get through, and once you get through it, you will be all the stronger for it and better able to deal with the challenges that will come your way over the course of the rest of your life? Because as I said, it is inevitable. I think it's very easy when you're struggling to look at other people's lives and think they are problem-free or that they have they have it easy or easier than you. And in some cases, yes, people do have it easier than us, but nobody's life is problem free. You know, what it being having problems and dealing with challenges, I don't even use the word problem actually, I say challenges, have because mm-hmm. challenges is more positive and it's like, it invites you to overcome it. Whereas problem feels like a brick wall. How do you solve a problem? Well, what if, if it's a challenge, you jump over it. If it's a problem, it's like, you, what do you do with it? It's overwhelmingly, uh, it's an overwhelming obstacle. So um, the, this idea that other people have it easier. And I think it's very easy to, to go into victim mode, which I have resisted most of my life. And certainly in my books, I resist it because that, that makes you helpless and weak and makes you feel that you are at the mercy of forces outside of your control. But actually, if you take responsibility for your life, even though, yes, you didn't get that job because you're a black person. Yes, that's true. They were discriminating against you. But what do you then do with that? How do you then move forwards and persist so that you do get the employment that you want? If you have that attitude instead of the world is against me, uh, life life is SH1T and I might as well give up, then you are disempowering yourself. So, So for the people who are going through hardship... I hope that these words of wisdom from a 62-year-old woman who has been round the houses and back, um, that they will offer you some sucker. Amazing. Uh, and so motivational. <laughs> it really is. Oh, my God. I'm going into motivational, um, I love motivational it. area now. The new Tony Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> well... I, I wonder then on resilience, do you think that it is something that everybody has within them? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's it's like uh, the imagination. It's like self-confidence, determination. We have them in them. We have these qualities inside us. But what we need to do is to nurture them in order to bring them to the fore. And, you know, we I think sometimes we can be quite hard on young people because we think of them as snowflake. Well, I don't, but you know, there is a conversation around young people being snowflakes and they've got to toughen up and not be so sensitive and it's not going to help them if they're not going to be able to get through life. But I wonder if it's just that because of social media, the the sensitivities of being young are out there in the public domain in a way that they weren't when I was young. 
because I think it's just it's, it's part the part of the rite of passage probably of coming of age is that you're finding yourself and you can be hypersensitive to all kinds of things in your life. But when when I was coming of age in the 80s, you know, nobody was really listening to me. You know, social media didn't exist. The Internet didn't exist for public use. So you, you were just talking to people around you. Um, it's only now it's all out there in the public domain. But but for those young people who think, well, I oh, I don't know if I can be resilient. Of course you can. And of course you are as well. Um, it's just you need to, um, you know, make sure that you continue to develop your resilience. And as I said, fortify it through the obstacles you're facing. Yeah. And I guess the, the tricky thing it feels about social media is that for so many benefits of more and more people's voices being heard and everybody, you know, it, it allows us to have a democracy in terms of voices. You know, you can build your own platform, but it also means that it's a proliferation of bad bad news and terrible instances of, of inequity and injustice being told on a daily basis. So it can feel like there's an onslaught of this news when in fact things that have always happened we just haven't always heard about them. And I think overwhelmingly we're taking steps forward. Um, but of course, with kind of the unla- on unlawful murder of George Floyd last year and the blackout Tuesday, it feels incessant at times, um, this kind of this news of injustice. And, and I think that that's something we've never really faced before in human history, having this constant kind of um, yeah. exploration of people's experiences. Yeah, I think I think you're right, but I also think that people need to extract themselves from those threads or the the people or organizing that organizations that they're following where they're getting a deluge of this information every day because what I get on my Twitter account are other writers news basically is other yeah. writers news. I don't really get a lot of that really heavy political stuff simply because I'm not engaging with it and I'm not following it and I, I I would argue also like I know that people are reading newspapers hard copy newspapers much less than they used to but I would argue that sort of even 20 30 years ago you know the idea of no news is good no news is um you know good news is no news you know so even the media itself focuses like this establishment media itself even if that's a term now it's um focuses on um on the things that are going wrong in the world mm-hmm. um, because you look at look at the particular newspaper that has a massive following where they're constantly even creating conflict where none exists between individuals because they know that it's clickbait and people are interested in, yeah. in conflict so I think that has always existed but I think we used to get years ago you used to get the newspaper and you'd read it in the morning maybe or at the weekend and you put it down and that was it now I'm sure some people are on Twitter almost 24 hours and, yeah. and they probably even have that awful thing called notifications, which I've never had for any of my platforms, right? Any of my social media engagement, never had notifications. Oh my God, no. So, so it is, it's nonstop, but they, but people need to take control and to remove themselves from those areas on the internet that are actually probably making them incredibly um, depressed and overwhelmed with the enormity of the task ahead. I wonder then, if you if social media had existed when you were in your twenties, do you think you would have been prolific online? 
I would have definitely engaged. I would have loved it up to a point. I would have had rows. I would have started rows. I would have told people where they were going wrong. Um, It it would have been a wonderful um, avenue of protest for me, I think, because I was very feminist um, and uh, black feminist and very angry at the world in my early 20s. And it would have been just wonderful to be able to talk to people about this. And I wouldn't have been very nuanced or complex in my thinking. And so I would have been the kind of person who might irritate me today when I sometimes say things on social media that they don't like because they think that my politics is as binary as Mm -hmm. theirs. Full stop. (laughs) And and that's the thing about a 140-character tweet or an Instagram caption you cannot get into the nuance of anything in that short form environment. It's it's very difficult to have a conversation via that medium, I think. Yes, and I think it's encouraging that kind of simplistic thinking and sound bites, because you have to think, how am I gonna get this over in the most punchy, powerful way? And that is not then giving you scope to have a, a complicated, reasoned, deep argument about anything. Absolutely. Um, I'd love to go back to your motivational uh, speaking with me just now. Um, and you share in in the book how in your kind of 30s, you really looked to personal development um, as a way to, to move forward. Um, and, and I'd just love to know why you think that personal development is important and, and for you to perhaps tell me about how you visualised winning the Booker Prize. Yeah all those years before it became a reality. Yes. So I'll start with the the Booker visualization. I learned to do something called creative visualization, which I think they now call manifestation and also to write affirmations in, in my thirties in the 1990s. And I started to think about, well, I was writing, uh, I'd written my first book. I was writing my second book. I started to think, what's, what can I achieve with my career? And I wanted, I wanted a massive readership. I wanted to win major awards. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, the biggest award is the Booker. And so I visualized winning the Booker and I wrote affirmations about winning the Booker. And so when <coughs> I did win the Booker, I told everyone, I said, yeah, well, I visualized this all those years ago. But the truth, but some people misinterpret that. So, and so I have to be very careful how I describe it because I have been quoted out of context. Basically, visualizing something is a way to motivate yourself to go for what you want and also a way to keep going a way to be unstoppable because you visualize the positive outcome of something that you want literally visualize it um, in your mind and um, in a a completely an entirely positive way but you visualize it as if you've already received it not that it's a desire to receive it, but that you've already received it. So it's like it's almost, it's been achieved. And the affirmations that I wrote and still write are in the present tense. They're personal and they're passionate. So if I want something, I will write an affirmation as if I have already received it. What this does is keeps me on track. Um, it's not something I obsess over. I visualize reading the booker and then I wrote it down several times and then I kind of forgot about it for a long time you know it wasn't like every day I woke up I've got to win the booker I'm going to win the booker no I just put it away what I did was I wrote the books I wanted to write 
And that means that I wasn't writing books that I thought would win the booker because until I won it as the first black British um, woman, the first black woman and the first black British person, the kinds of books that I write did not win the booker, right? And the kinds of books that win the booker have changed every year because every year there's a different jury of, is it five or six? I think it's five people who Mm. are very disparate now nowadays they're very disparate they never used to be so disparate so so you have so so writing a book that I wanted to win the booker uh would have been unrealistic but what I did was I developed my voice I I wrote from the wrote stories I I have been really quite radical and experimental as a writer and then everything society began to shift and then suddenly there was more attention paid on my work to my work and then there was the right panel of judges at the Booker, uh, sorry, for the Booker Prize in 2019, and they chose my book and Margaret Atwoods as the winners. So it, it, the stars aligned for me, you know, something like two decades after I'd first imagined it. But if I hadn't have imagined it, I could, I still could have won the Booker, right? It instilled in me a sense of ambition and a mm-hmm. vision for my life. The personal developments I did, courses I did, that's what they did for me. Because until that point, I had been quite ambitious, wanted to be an actor. I was an actor, wanted to work in professional, went to drama school, wanted to work in professional theatre. I set up my own theatre company, Theatre Black Women. You know, so I was very actively doing what I wanted to do. But I didn't have a long term vision for what I wanted to do. And I'd left theatre behind. I was focusing on writing. So I was entering the lit- entering the literary world and not really knowing it or understanding it. And then realising that there was an organization called the British Council and they sent writers all over the world all the time as they used to. Um, so it was, a, it was great if they knew about your work and would, 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 would send you internationally. And I thought, well, I'll get to travel through my work. So I visualized working for them and I did for many, many years. I, w- I went all over the world for the British Council, but I first had to recognize they were there and then think I want to work for them. And then Put, make the steps towards making that reality. So I approached them and said, oh, I know you don't know about my work, but here's my work. Can I can I do some touring for you? And they, they started to send me abroad. I mean, it was actually quite simple in the end. I just approached them at the right time. I had two books under my belt and they, they then took me on board. Um, so I was proactive in achieving that goal that I had for myself, but that wasn't an, a, a huge goal. That was a, that wasn't like a vision, right? A book winning the Booker was a vision. Selling a million millions of copies of my books was a vision, which I've now done. You know, for Girl, Woman, Other, a million copies in the English language. That was a vision because that was an unrealistic goal. That was massive. That was me aiming for something that, if I told anybody this is what I was planning, they would have said, "No, no, no, it's rubbish." Of course, you're not. You, people used to say to me, "Well, you're never going to sell many copies of your books." I mean, that's what they used to tell me. Of course, you're not. And yet inside, I was like, no, I am. I am. And yeah. it's going to happen because in my head, it already happened. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope that explains a little bit about the personal development that I was doing. And also, I think if you're growing up in a family or a culture where you're not encouraged to think big, because you're female, because you're working class, because you're a person of colour, um, you know, and I do include women in that, you know, 50 of over 50%, I think, of the population, you know, we're still growing up in an essentially, um, you know, less so, but it's still a patriarchal culture, where the expectations on us are less than if we are men. And also, 
you know, if you're working class, you know, you're still having going to have to struggle to achieve for many people in a way that, you know, others are not going to have to struggle because they're already part of an establishment that is a ruling elite in this country. So then what do you do? You have to build yourself up somehow. And I did that through personal development courses. Um, so inspiring. Um, and I just absolutely adore that you visualise winning the booker. And even though people told you that it was out of your reach, you knew that it wasn't. Mm. And look at where you are. Look at look, look at how that's you know come to be. We're going to have to start to wrap up, much to my sadness. Um, but I'd love to know, what is the one kind of prevailing message that you would like people to take away from your experiences and reading Manifesto? Does it have to be just one thing? <laughs> you can say as many as you like. Okay, good. Um, I think I think these are the qualities I needed to 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 reach this point in my career: a vocation, right? Mm-hmm. So that is uh, not just doing a job because um, because people expect me to do a particular kind of job. You know, it could be the parents. You know, a lot of people are actually pressured to go into certain professions because their parents—that's their expectation. I never had that. Um, or they're choosing a particular job because it's going to give them a lifestyle, but they hate the work. Um, so they may be super rich, but they actually hate their job and they're going to do it for 40 years. Uh, and then at the end of it, feel completely spent and uh, mm-hmm. they've wasted their life, even though they're super rich. Um, so finding a vocation and then um, discovering the self-discipline necessary to, 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 um, to realise the ambition you have for your career, developing a vision so not just an ambition, but developing a vision for your career. Where do you want to be 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years? Even though that might change, you know, have a sort of goal that inspires you. Not one that you think is achievable, but one that really inspires you. How can you be a force for good in the world? You know, because it's also about community. It's not just about the individual. Unfortunately, a lot of people think it is about the individual, but it is about community. So it's about what is your role in your community, in your society, in your country? How do you make it a better place for everybody? That is also a great motivation. In my case, it was about the African diaspora. How can I tell African diasporic stories um, that put us on the map, that, that validate who we are in this country and this country's relationship globally, which is historical? hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, And then, um, so you have to be, you know, finding the self-motivation, committing, committing to what you want to do, being patient, you know. Uh, Instant success um, isn't always the best solution. Um, Like the resilience that you need, you don't develop that if you're instantly successful. But also, if you're instantly successful, where do you have to go with that? Um, mm. that's probably it's probably after the instant success at the age of 23 that you have to develop resilience and we know a lot of people fall by the wayside you know the sort of big public figures the, the, the musicians and so on who fall by the wayside because they can never recover from the instant success because it was so misleading in a sense for so many people um, and what would be the other thing um, uh, commitment da, da, da. yeah being resourceful ten, being tenacious never giving up, you know, never saying, it's, you, you will have to accept no for an answer, but find a way around it. Um, and uh, being resourceful and imaginative in terms of how you achieve your vision. And um, and if you're a creative person, honour your creativity. Lead the, live the creative life because ultimately it will be so incredibly rewarding for you in itself 
you know, as a as a as a as a job, as a hobby, as a vocation, it is rewarding in itself. And then there may be sort of the icing on the cake eventually. Thank you so much, Bernie. Um, so manifesto, I have to say, it's so funny. You write <laughs> with such humour about yes, your hardships, but kind of the journeys that you've had along the way. Um, I have to ask, if writing wasn't your raison d'être, what what would be? That's so hard because writing is <laughs> in my DNA. Um, I would be a professional traveller. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I just travel around the world all the time. <laughs> Fantastic. And if you could recommend one book to our community then of CEOs, founders and these decision makers who are responsible for kind of moving our society ever forwards, what would it be? Okay, The Authority Gap by Mary Ann Seagart, published this year. And it's about it's about the role of women in our society and who who it's about authority and the role of women in our society. And if you are people running organizations, you need to read that book. There we have it. Thank you so much, Isabel. What a wonderful person and conversation there. A final reminder, if you haven't already, to sign up to the Journey Further book club, to connect with Journey Further and with Isabel on LinkedIn. We've got much more content like this in the pipeline for 2022. Thank you for listening and see you soon.